Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 212 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Judge Stephen Dillard, the official Twitter laureate of Georgia, about the proliferation of tweeting judges and the role of courts in closing the access to justice gap. Today's podcast is brought to you by Podium, Gusto, and Case Text. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. Stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. So Judge Dillard was an early-ish guest on the podcast a couple of years ago, talking yep. about similar topics, but we love having him on and getting to know him better, so we thought it would be fun to bring him back. And I'm really enthusiastic about the things he has done to encourage judges to participate in social media in appropriate ways to kind of democratize access to judges and the court system and how that plays somewhat in his It access. sounds like there's a but coming. But <laughs> having more episodes about Twitter feels gross to me personally, and I'm wearing my speaking only for myself, not on behalf of the company hat right now, which yes. is like, I hate Twitter, and I think it is <laughs> everything that is wrong with the internet and society right now. I mean, I don't disagree. I, I think Twitter is maybe a bit of a red herring, just because I think Facebook shares most of the same problems in different ways. But yeah, I mean, the way social media encourages you to say provocative things and unthoughtful, unnuanced things and takes sides and pushes people to extremes is it doesn't encourage engagement and interaction and empathy. It encourages just like sniping and mob mentality yeah. and clickishness in a way that isn't about building community, but is more on the exclusive rather than inclusive side and how it polarizes people and how it like flame wars and troll wars and all this shit. Like it's gross to me. Yeah, so like I have this conflict because I think a lot about trying to subtract social media from my life. I would love to delete my Facebook account and never go back to Twitter. And God, LinkedIn is pointless and I wish I could just get away from it entirely. But I can't for a variety of reasons, some of which have to do with the fact that our business has interests in being able to use those platforms to promote things or to engage with our community. And like I couldn't even organize, you know, my kids' Girl Scout troop is organized through Facebook and we stay in touch with other parents at school through Facebook, and I don't know how to replicate that anywhere else. Yep. I don't think there's a good answer. There isn't a good answer, but it feels like a big problem we need to figure out. And lawyerists, to be clear, <laughs> lawyerists' official company position <laughs> is if you want to engage with us on Twitter, we are happy to chat and interact with you, and you should absolutely follow Lawyerist on Twitter. Yeah. I will probably even check in every once in a while and like some things, but that's about it. And I do because I also have great conversations on Twitter. Like, it'll be last week by the time this podcast airs. I've had a great conversation with a number of people, including one of our very recent podcast guests, Cat Moon, and a bunch of other podcast guests about the state of legal conferences and innovation and what needs to happen. And they were good and they involved some nuance and some productive conversations, none of which was toxic or polarizing. And those things happen and, uh, you know, maybe they redeem it a bit. I, there's, there, <laughs> look, there's no question that there are great uses for Twitter and that some people are able to find lots of value from it. I don't dispute that right. at all. There are some people who 
love it and need it and build their days around it. The tool itself, though, is breaking everything around us. Yeah, no, it's it, it's bad for society. Um, but to bring it back, um, <laughs> the way the way in which Judge Dillard uses it is one of those examples of how it can be used really well for public outreach. And so I'm going to let him totally. talk about that. And we're going to talk about the proliferation of judges on Twitter right after a brief sponsored conversation with Case Text. Stay tuned. Hey, I am Jake Heller, the co-founder and CEO of CaseText. CaseText is a legal research website that uses artificial intelligence to help you research faster, more affordably, and more efficiently than you likely are right now. And what we're talking about today is about artificial intelligence. Oh, I love talking about AI and robots. Oh, yeah. So, Jake, tell us about the robots that are coming for our jobs. Well, I mean, that's the thing, right? So artificial intelligence, I think, is is greatly misunderstood. And ever since we started working on artificial intelligence, we've been getting so many questions from lawyers that I think demonstrates there's a lot of confusion. And so confusion num- point number one, yeah, confusion <laughs> point number one is there are no robots coming for your job, at least not probably in our lifetimes. And the, the reality is that most aspects of legal practice require a uniquely human intellect, you know, judgment about what to do or not to do, what is, you know, going to be persuasive in a brief developing clients, you know, robots are going to go golfing with the clients for us, right? Um, all of these things are ultimately human tasks. Yeah. So, so the question is really like, what is artificial intelligence actually? And what, it, what can it even really do for my practice if it's not going to completely replace everything, right? Yeah, do you have some good examples? Like bring us back from the sci-fi, you know, all powerful super AIs and talk about how it's actually operating to benefit people and lawyers now. Totally. So at a high level, what artificial intelligence even is, and that, that will help explain what it can do for you. What it is, is simply a mechanical technology process that emulates one piece of human intelligence, yeah. right? So for example, being able to understand voice and language is one great example of artificial intelligence or being able to pick up a pattern from a bunch of data is another great example of artificial intelligence. Or what Kara does, uh, Case Text AI, which is read a brief for you and help you understand the patterns of legal issues in the brief, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So one of our, so a few examples of this, one of our technologies, Kara, is a technology where you literally just drag and drop in a brief or complaint and it will come back to you very quickly with research ideas about what you need to be researching next. It is using both the piece of human intelligence that is understanding language and also looking for patterns, for example, the patterns in your citations to see, you know, and what other people have cited to see what you should cite to next. And the other examples might include e-discovery where it might suggest, you know, the next document to review being more relevant than the last, um, reviewing contracts and seeing what kind of sticks out. Um, and other aspects of legal research are all impacted by these aspects of artificial intelligence. And it's making a real impact in a lot of people's practices today. So besides the sci-fi is going to take cover all of our jobs, it actually might be helping you already today doing one of these things you may not even know it's artificial intelligence. So Jake, you're trying to sell artificial intelligence, so that's why you're excited about it. I'm excited about artificial intelligence because the possibilities to make the world a better place are amazing. What do you say to lawyers who are like, yeah, things are going fine right now. I like my law library. I like my old school legal research solution. Why try new things? I don't want to change. I think that at the end of the day, the real reason to change is that it will make you a better practitioner. 
Yeah. And that's because what the machine is doing sometimes are things that a person or even group of people cannot do that effectively. So for example, it might help you unsurface precedent that you may have otherwise missed while doing legal research. It may help you unsurface a key document in e-discovery that you would otherwise totally miss, right? Yeah. And by the way, it's doing all of this and it may help you do this way faster so instead of, for example, charging by the hour, if you have clients who, who care about this kind of stuff, you can say, I know for a fact that with AI, my research will only take me two hours instead of 10. And as a result, I can change the way that I interact with my clients. Right. So, you know, whether it be being more efficient, finding things you would otherwise miss or pricing more predictably, it can put you in a position to be an all around better practitioner. And I think for that reason, it's worth checking out. Well, and I guess like fundamentally, if you aren't trying to improve the legal service that you give your clients, if you're not trying to improve your practice of law or the practice of law, if you're not trying to make the world a better place in those small ways, then what is your goal as a person who runs a business and a law practice? And so yeah, I, think, I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean, yeah. hopefully, why try new things? The answer should be because you can make things better. And yes. that should be enough, I hope. Yes, I hope so too. I hope so too. <laughs> if you'd like to learn more about case text and making the world a better place through artificial intelligence in at least one small way that could have a big impact on your practice and your client service, go to casetext.com slash lawyerist. You can get a 14-day free trial and see how case text and Kara work. And exclusive for our listeners, you can get 15% off once again by visiting casetext.com slash lawyerist. Thanks so much, Jake. Thank you. Great to be with you. My name is Stephen Dillard. I'm the Chief Judge of the Court of Appeals of Georgia. Welcome back to the podcast, Judge Dillard. It's great to have you back. Great to be back. And just like last time, I am not going to call you your honor all the time, even though the litigator in me wants to. That's quite <laughs> all right. That, that's okay. We're not in a court. It's perfectly fine. So congratulations. I saw you just started your second full term at the Georgia Court of Appeals. That's awesome. That's correct. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's always nice to get validation from the people you serve. How many years in are you now? So I, I just hit the eight-year mark uh, back in November. Mm -hmm. So I just started my second full term and that will go through the end of 2024. We have six year terms. So for the benefit of any other appellate judges listening, what do you know about being an appellate judge now that you wish you knew on the day you first donned your robes? That's a great question. I think <laughs> here's the big thing. You know, I, I thankfully I spent two years lurking for Judge Daniel Mannion on the uh, United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. So in terms of kind of understanding how an intermediate appellate court operates and mm -hmm. how a, a judge in that, I don't know that I could have had a better model. The, the one thing that is a little bit different, at least on the state side, and is, I think, a positive byproduct of having judges who are directly accountable to the people through elections, I don't think I understood how much time the ceremonial aspect of the job would require. Yeah. And it is considerably more than, I think, federal judges. I know that federal judges give speeches. I know they go to conferences. But, it, it, you know, a lot of my time as a intermediate state intermediate appellate judge is spent speaking to civic groups, speaking to uh, at CLEs. I, I spend a lot of time speaking to folks, hosting people at the Court of Appeals, 
speaking to students, doing high school mock trial. And these are all things I love, by the way, right. but they, it does take a lot of time. And so I think the one thing I would warn folks who are becoming state appellate judges is that, you know, there's going to be a lot of ceremonial things that you're going to do and you're going to enjoy them. But then that means on the weekend, sometimes you're playing catch up with your work. And it sounds like those have the double purpose of you're doing them on the one hand to, you know, open up the court system, educate people, right. you know, service to the bar and to the public. But it also gets your name out there and helps you get reelected. It's good politics. I mean, <laughs> I think, you know, it's I always like to say doing the right thing is always good politics. There you go. So I think it is important for judges to be out there and to be accessible to the people we serve. And I, like I said, I enjoy it. I love speaking to lawyers or non-lawyers, and I love especially when they bring in student groups. That's probably one of my favorite things. I love swearing in new lawyers. I mean, all of those things, it can be a tough profession, and we have a lot of cases that deal with very – you know, with heavy subject matter. So yeah. it's nice to to be able to do those things as a judge. And you always have to remember, you may be doing a lot of these things, that person coming before you, whether it's a swearing in ceremony or whether it's a student group, you, you'll never know what kind of impact you can have in those few moments with each person that you meet. And so I try to always keep that in the back of my mind. That makes me think about something that I've wondered about a bit, which is how isolating is it to be a judge? Because I, I feel like it's it is different than being a congressperson or, or you know state or federal representative or or even a governor or an executive, other kind of executive. Like a judge is an intimidating thing <laughs> for people to get their heads around, and and it feels like it might end up being a little weird even for your old friends to to sit down and have a drink with you. And once you become something so significant, I don't know. I'm just I've wondered about that if it's isolating or not. I think it can be. I think you can make it less isolating. I mean, one of the reasons that I do social media and one of the reasons that I try to do little things like not wear ties when I go to functions. And I want to do everything I can to appear more approachable. I've said this a lot. When I was coming up as a lawyer, you'd go to some of these bar events, and that was usually the time where you would see a judge. And it was intimidating. I mean, they usually had gray hair. They were considerably older. They were almost these mythical figures. And mm -hmm. I know that's that's how it was coming up. And when I became a judge, I just decided I was going to do things differently. And I'm not saying my approach – well, I, I do think it's better. I will, I will <laughs> say I think it's better. I, 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 made a, I made a decision that when I became a judge that I was going to do everything in my power to be more accessible – because I think it's important for judges to educate and mentor and be engaged with not only lawyers and law students, but the people we serve. I mean, at the end of the day, judges are public servants. We're accountable to the people. And I think for a while we got in on our heads that judges, you know, they wear these black robes, they sit up on the bench, and they really, you know, that we want them separated in a way from the public. But I think there's the harm there. I think that when judges become so far removed, from the people they serve, I think it can impact how you do oh, your sure. job. And so I've just taken a different approach. And I know there are some people that don't agree with that. They think that it's beneath the dignity of the court for a judge to be on Twitter, to be on social media platforms, to be as engaged as I am and doing other things in real life, going to speeches, doing high school mock trial and being as visible as I am. I just 
respectfully disagree. I think that judges who who do that, who are more accessible, as long as they're not doing anything online that they, you know, wouldn't do. I mean, as long as you're not doing anything online that you wouldn't also (laughs) do in public. Right. I mean, it's all about using good judgment. At the end of the day, whether you're online or in real life, you should use good judgment. And I think if you're promoting professionalism, if you're promoting civility, if you're promoting access to the courts, if you are, uh, if you're doing all of those things, I don't see how that's harmful. Well, I suppose if a judge has difficulty uh, exercising good judgment, then maybe we've got a problem. <laughs> well, but you know, that, why, I, one of the things I point out in this article I wrote for for Judicature, uh, this publication by Duke University, mm-hmm. is I said there is some benefit. I mean, if there's a judge who is on social media. And they're doing things that are inappropriate. It's going to be noticed, and sure. maybe that's a good thing. Maybe we maybe we catch them doing it, and maybe if they're doing it online, you know, if they're if they're engaging in poor judgment online, they're probably doing it in real life. And there is a certain you know uh, uh, you know kind of bringing things to to the daylight, right? Bringing yep. things to the public's notice. I don't think that's a necessarily a bad thing. Um, let's. Let's use those examples, and then maybe they need to be removed from office or disciplined in a way that will make them a better judge. So I, 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 yes, there are pitfalls for judges using social media, but at the end of the day, I don't think that in and of itself is, is a reason not for judges not to use social media. Well, you, the last time we spoke, the first time we spoke, was you and Judge Willett and I think one of your colleagues, maybe Judge Wright, if I'm remembering right, had just joined, joined Twitter. Judge Judge McMillan, I think. Judge maybe that's McMillan right. may, may have been, yeah, may have been on Twitter at that point. And since then, there has been kind of an explosion of judge. Uh, may, maybe that's overstating it, but it feels like there are a lot more judges on Twitter than there were when we just talked a couple years ago. That seems like Right in line with what you're saying. And and I guess what I was thinking about it is it does take judges from that inaccessible position where it's really just it, it almost felt like a few privileged, well-established lawyers would get to know them and golf with them. And al- almost nobody else ever got to spend any time outside of a courtroom with a judge. And that's probably overstating it, too. But I guess I personally think it's amazing that judges can be more accessible to the public. And and I guess maybe that's where the Twitter Laureate of Georgia Award comes in. Uh, what's that all about? <laughs> well, so my uh, a good friend of mine, Representative Scott Holcomb, uh, he he approached me about it, and uh, I can't remember how it came up. I think it all started, of course, with my good friend Don Willett, who was recognized yep. as the. I think he was the, the in Texas they called it the Tweeter Laureate, <laughs> and that may actually be the more appropriate title. But in any event. I can't remember how it happened, but he and I were joking around about it. And he was like, I'm going to get this done for you. And I said, you know, I just kind of laughed it off and I was like, okay. All right. And then, you know, next thing I know, you know, fast forward <laughs> a year later, he sends me a message through a direct message on Twitter. He's like, Hey, I hope you like it. And he sends me a link. And sure enough, he's gotten all these co-sponsors. And the thing that I loved about it was it was bipartisan. There were Democrats and Republicans and the the purpose of it, I think, is really more – I hope and I think it's bigger than just me being given a recognition. I hope what it does is encourages not only judges but public officials in general to really work at using social media in a positive way. And And they were recognizing me because of my efforts to promote civility, 
to promote professionalism, to promote transparency uh, with regard to Georgia's appellate courts. And, you know, and I think also to just to show a human side yeah. that judges, you know, one of my colleagues uh, who's used to be on the Court of Appeals, now, he's now on the Supreme Court of Georgia, John Ellington, used to say, you know, there's life outside the courtroom, go and get one. You know, don't <laughs> be don't don't be so consumed with your job being a lawyer or a judge that you fail to kind of live life. And and so one of the things I try to do with my Twitter account and I think people who know me in, in real life will tell you this, who follow me on Twitter and know me, that my Twitter is a pretty accurate reflection of of who I am. Now, it probably doesn't show, you know, obviously you put your best foot forward on, on social <laughs> media. I'm not – by no means am I perfect. I, you know, I, I, I have plenty of faults, and, and maybe those aren't always coming, you know, to – you know, you can be – short with your kids or your wife, or you can get into disagreements, or maybe you're not as charitable with one of your friends as you ought to be. But I think in terms of getting a sense of who I am as a person, Twitter does a pretty good job of that in terms of my interests, my passions, the things I care about. You know, I don't obviously talk about partisan politics or what my views are on policy matters, and and rightly so. You know, I want to be a judge that no matter what someone's background is or what their, you know, preferred policy preferences are, that when they come before me, they know that that I'm going, that, you know, that I'm going to put aside my personal views and I'm going to follow the law, and I want them to have confidence in that. So I keep it light. Yep. I talk about music, sports. You know, I will talk about in general the law, no specific issues, but I'll talk about you know, oral argument tips, brief writing tips. I'll talk about the history of the Georgia Court of Appeals, our inner workings, our culture. I mean, those are just a few topics that, right. that we'll address. And I try to keep it light. I mean, I try to be careful even with humor. Um, you know, and I think, once again, it's just it's it's using the same judgment that you would use in real life on a, on a social media platform. It's it, it shouldn't be radically different. The big difference is if there's a misstep, you can go viral much quicker. But, you know, even that's changing, mm -hmm. uh, Sam, because the truth is, even if you're not on social media, if you give a speech to a group, <laughs> doesn't you you're going to be on social media. Yeah, <laughs> you, you, you can bet that if you say something, you know, so the question becomes, I would rather be out there and have a reputation with folks. And if somebody tries to take something I've said out of context, then at least having been accessible and being available to the public, I, I think it's almost a defense in a way of someone taking you out of context. Uh, at least the initial reaction to it might be that that that's got to be taken out. Of you might context. get the benefit of the doubt or. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. not in line with it. So I think pretty soon it's not going to matter whether you're on social media. The question is, are you going to go out and are you going to be out there and be visible in public? Or are you going to let someone else do it for you at some point, uh, unless you're just going to hide you know, in the courthouse and never, <laughs> and never appear in public. And I just don't think, <laughs> I think even for federal judges, that's unlikely. Even federal judges give speeches and are, are uh, you know, available every once in a while. Um, although much less so than, than state judges. Well, we need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and when we come back. I want to pivot and talk about the role of courts in closing the access to justice gap. So we'll be right back. Legal research is too expensive, hard to use, and time-consuming. It doesn't have to be. 
With Case Text, you can save $2,000 and 210 hours on legal research this year. Case Text has unique artificial intelligence technology that does a lot of the research for you. Just drag and drop a complaint or brief, and you'll quickly find cases on the same facts, legal issues, and jurisdiction. Case Text is fast, well designed, and comprehensive, and it's very affordable. Go to casetext.com/lawyerist to get Case Text for $55 a month. Case Text is modern legal research trusted by over 3,000 small firms and 40 firms in the AmLaw 200. Go to casetext.com/lawyerist to get started. If you have a small business or know someone who does, you probably know that small business owners wear a lot of hats, and some of those hats are totally great. But some, like filing taxes and running payroll, for example, are not so great. That's where Gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, and HR easy for small businesses. Fast, simple payroll processing, benefits, and expert HR support all in one place. Gusto automatically pays and files your federal, state, and local taxes so you don't have to worry about it. Plus, they make it easy to add on health benefits and even 401ks for your team. Those old-school, clunky payroll providers just weren't built for the way modern small businesses work. But Gusto is, so let them wear one of your many hats. You have better things to do. Listeners get three months free when they run their first payroll. Try a demo and see for yourself at gusto.com lawyerist. That's gusto.com lawyerist. In business, reputation is everything. And while online reviews can make or break you, your best clients probably aren't showing up. And that's too bad, because if they did, you'd have more clients, more referrals, and be the top-rated law firm in your area. If you're tired of waiting for reviews to trickle in, you have a choice. Either keep waiting or get proactive with Podium. Podium helps you get more reviews on the sites that matter most. Use their messaging platform to give friendly reminders while sending clients straight to the review sites that you care about the most. With Podium's built-in analytics, you can set goals, monitor progress, and incentivize your team to reach out to more clients. Become the number one choice online. Visit podium.com slash lawyerist to save 10% when you start. That's podium.com slash lawyerist to get started and save 10%. So we're back. Judge Dillard, I have been known to say that it's pretty hard to imagine anything being truly disruptive in the law because it is slow moving by nature and that's probably not a bad thing. But the one part of the legal system that I think could truly be disruptive is the court system because they're the one part of the system that can just bang a gavel and change everything. For example, in my own practice, which it's been a while since I actively did it, I dealt with debt collection. I sued debt collectors. I defended people sued by debt collectors. And I was dismayed at the volume of the court's business that was taken up by effectively rubber stamping requests to to garnish wages and things like that. And I dreamed about the courts just saying, you know, requiring debt collectors to submit a form that verified that they had all of the proof together before they got to go garnish somebody's wages. And I realized that some judges are like, ooh, that's pretty activist. But another example that I could think of is the courts taking their self-help desks another step further and having official forms that people can fill out online to get business done at the courts. It feels like that could make just a massive difference to accessibility. And I'm wondering how you react to that and how you think about what courts are doing and how you might think about the role that courts could play in making it easier for people to use them. Well, let me let me answer. It's a massive question I just posed you, but (laughs) sure. So let me let me let me say that, first of all, I think, you know, having worked now been chief judge and worked closely with our clerk of court, I can tell you we're very concerned about kind of what I would call point of service. We're, We're concerned about, you know, and I'll give you some examples. We have on our website a citizen's guide 
that, that in plain English talks about different aspects of the appellate process, and that is primarily meant for people that are pro se and representing themselves, going over things like what the standard review is, what that means. And we spent an entire summer having some really bright interns, do an initial draft, vetting it through our clerk, sending it to the judges, letting us look at it and approving it before it, it went on the website. So that's that's just one way that we try to be to be proactive in terms of dealing with the public. Um, another accommodation that we've made is that sometimes we have lawyers that are pro hoc and they have to get admitted quickly. And normally in the past, for most courts, you have to be in person to take the oath. We decided to do that you know, allow it by telephone in, in certain circumstances. We wanted to do that because we recognize that not everybody can get there. And we, once again, you know, it doesn't really make sense to have some lawyer who might have to charge their client to come get sworn in or they can't bill it. And that's just wasting time, especially in a massive state like Georgia, where, you know, you've got Savannah, you know, <laughs> four hours or four and a half hours away from Atlanta. We also, uh, I think I mentioned this last time, we, we uh, I don't know if we were live streaming, but since I think you and I last talked, our court is now live streaming oral arguments, okay. which is once again, provide that anybody, not just lawyers, they're accessible to anybody. And we archive those arguments, oh, cool. uh, which I think is important from a transparency standpoint. I think you were just getting ready to go live with that at last time we spoke. Right. And so we got the funding. Uh, and I, I'm very thankful to the Georgia legislature for going on and allowing us to do that. We're getting ready to move into a new courthouse. And they could have just said, well, let's just wait until three year, three or four years until mm -hmm. you get in. And then they were like, no, we agree with you. This is a matter of transparency, and the Supreme Court was already doing it. So that's another way uh, that we do it. But we have a lot of things on our website that I think uh, we, we started a Twitter account to let people know when, we have, when we're going to be closed or, or uh, you know, there's all sorts of things. I mean, they, these are some of these are access to justice related. And, you know, a lot of our uh, filings are now electronic. Um, we're, we're looking at ways to reduce or eliminate fees for people representing indigent individuals. I mean, we're, we are constantly reevaluating whether what we're doing is hindering access to justice for the most vulnerable citizens in Georgia. And, you know, we also still take some paper filings because, <laughs> sure. you know, quite frankly, pri prisoners don't always have, I mean, sometimes they have access to computers, um, but a lot of times they don't. And so obviously we're going to make exceptions there. So we, I think what I would say is the Georgia Court of Appeals, and I think I could say this for the Supreme Court of Georgia as well, is we, we, you know, we, we aren't just banging a gavel. And the nice thing is we coordinate with our Supreme Court on our rules and how we operate, and we let them know if we're doing something different or if we're looking at doing something different. They coordinate with us. And then we have the Judicial Council, um, which I currently serve on, where you have representatives from each class of courts, and we're, we're currently working kind of collectively to come up with an e-filing portal system where no matter, you know, where it, it won't be like PACER necessarily, but it'll be a one-stop shopping where Georgia lawyers can go and file something. Um, so we're moving toward, I don't know if that's so much an access to justice, but there might be, there obviously would be some implications yeah. from, from that. But I say all that to say we are working together collectively 
as a judiciary in Georgia, um, and we're talking these things through. We're not doing anything on a whim or without thinking about the implications of making those kinds of changes, you know, because and that goes to your point is that the law moves slowly. You know, we we took a while even just implementing live streaming to make sure that we were doing it the right way. And so I think, you know, even when that decision comes out, it's usually been uh, there's been a lot of deliberation, a lot of eyes and a lot of different points of view that have led up to that. And I think even once you've made a decision that may be disruptive or that may change the status quo, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It may improve things. And you have to be willing, I think, to constantly – that's one of the things I try to encourage at the Court of Appeals is if somebody's got a better way of doing something, I want to hear whether it's internal or external. I want to hear that. So that that we can improve, I think you should constantly be reevaluating your processes and things you do to make sure that you're being as efficient as possible while not sacrificing kind of the quality of review and your work product. So I'm going to ask you a question that maybe is a little unfair because you're an appellate judge, not a district court judge. Sure. One of the criticisms commonly leveled at the legal system is that it's designed for lawyers when lawyers are actually the minority users of the system. Right. Right. Like in family court, for example, 70% of litigants are unrepresented but everyone goes about their business as if it's lawyers and judges and clients rather than just people approaching, you know, standing in front of the courtroom. And, you know, I, I, I've noticed sometimes things get tense when there's a pro se person in the courtroom who doesn't seem to know what they're doing, which nobody does because it's complicated and it's not really designed for them. And I'm wondering if you have a sense for sort of an awareness on the part of courts that courts are not designed for pro se folks and and a willingness to try and figure out how to make that shift so that regular folks can use the courts um, as much as they are, but with a lot less difficulty? I don't know. And again, that may be an unfair question for an appellate judge. I don't know. Well, I mean, obviously, we do get a lot of pro se appeals, and you know, we we look carefully at everything. But but you know, my instructions are always to treat the pro se appeals as seriously as we treat a brief from King and Spalding. You know mm-hmm. that, and it's not unusual for me to rule in favor of a pro se party, and sometimes that means, you know, maybe expanding. You know, it, a lot. You'd be surprised at how good some of them are. <laughs> I, I've been not necessarily. I've watched some good ones. Now, some of them are obviously, you know, you've got folks that just don't have the expertise. But, you know, even sometimes when they're stumbling along, they stumble across a, a valid issue. So we treat, you know, all I can say from, from my chambers is we treat those appeals very seriously. Um, I think beyond that, I've talked to a lot of judges at the trial level, and especially in the in the family law context. It is my understanding that they there are a lot of efforts that are made to provide information when people come to the court and say, hey, we want to do an uncontested divorce. They have packets available that are in plain English that try to walk them through that process. So I do, you know, my sense, although I I don't, I've never served as a trial judge, my sense is that there are efforts to provide, much like we have on our website, as I mentioned, a citizen's guide. My sense is that is going on in, in a lot of trial courts 
uh, in Georgia. I mean, I don't want to misrepresent anything, but I just I'm, I'm in my head. I'm remembering conversations from judicial council meetings where I feel like at every level there's there's a a real effort and an understanding that that you're right. A lot of the people that appear in court are are self represented. They are proceeding pro se, and I, I do think there's a sensitivity, at least in our state, to trying to ensure that. These folks know the process and understand their rights and and to, to kind of bend over backwards. Now, you can wear out your welcome, right? I mean, you can <laughs> yeah. if, if you are uh, if you are constantly filing frivolous uh, appeals or you're constantly, you know, at a certain point, you do wear out your welcome. And, you know, there are there are measures and things that courts can do to deal with that. But, you know, I, I my sense is that there are efforts, kind of ongoing efforts, to to educate the people um, that are proceeding pro se and and to and to help them out and to give them guidelines, especially in areas like family law where they're you know they're dealing. It's easier for them to have something in place to give those folks and to kind of help them along the way than it is to simply deal with it on a case-by-case basis when you can put something out, you know, whether it's something online on the website or something, a handout that will answer most of the questions rather than having to field those phone calls. So I think there's some incentive. I don't know that that answers your question, but that's Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I guess I'm just sort of ruminating. Uh, you know, the, the legal system is a system designed to be used by expert users. Right. But it turns out that most of the users, the vast majority of the users of the legal system are not expert users. And I wonder if, is it even, you know, a lot of people, me included, sometimes like to talk about ways that we think the system could be reworked so that it isn't a system for expert users, but it's a system for everyday users. And I'm wondering if that just feels fundamentally impractical. I don't know. Sure. I mean, I, I think there's constantly there, there are always things we can do to improve the system and to make it more accessible to the people we serve. Quite frankly, that's another reason. I mean, part of it's a confidence thing, right? I mean, people have to have confidence right. that the judges and the courts they go before are, you know, care about the people that appear before them. And some of that is going out and speaking to groups that aren't just lawyers and judges, which is another reason why I think having judges on social media and having people who aren't lawyers who see that, see that judges are human beings and uh, that they're they're doing their best to serve the public. I think there's a certain amount of confidence that comes from that with judges kind of being out in the open rather than cloistered away, you know, at the courthouse. And so I know that doesn't directly address what you're talking about, but I, you know, my sense is that judges, whether they're at the trial level or the appellate level, at least in the state system, at least in our system, that is a concern. And I do get the sense that there is a push to, you know, accommodate and to educate uh, those folks when when they're starting their journey, when they first walk into the courthouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there are a lot of Georgia courts, at the, whether it's, you know, for example, the probate court, right? I mean, in Georgia, in some towns, the probate court isn't, doesn't even have a real lawyer as a judge. It's just a citizen. And that, that shocks people when I, you know, tell them that. <laughs> in, in, in areas of Georgia, over 100,000 people, you ha- I think it's 100,000, you have to have – now, some of the smaller areas do have lawyers as judges. But I'm pretty sure in a lot of probate courts there are certain citizen guides. Uh, in magistrate court, there are certain – they kind of walk you through mm-hmm. the process of filing a – you know, a, now, does that answer all our – 
all the issues that you're talking about. <laughs> I don't not, think but, so, but, but I think we're getting there. And yeah. I think, quite frankly, I think there's more of a demand. I think that people, you know, my age and younger are demanding more accountability from, from the judicial branch. And they're, they're demanding more customer service in the sense that it needs to be more accessible and, and there needs to be an understanding by the judicial branch that, that the vast majority of people um, that are coming through the system are not represented by lawyers. Yeah. Um, so I, I think you're right to raise the question. I don't know that I have all the answers, but I we are I can tell you from our perspective at the Court of Appeals, we are trying as best we can to be accessible to everyone and to make it as easy as possible to practice before our court, whether or not you're represented by a lawyer or or whether you're pro se. Well, that's good to hear. Switching gears a little bit uh, and, and going backwards a little bit, do you have a sense for how many judges are on Twitter now? I just thought since you were one of the early judges on Twitter, you might have uh, taken note of that. There are a lot now. <laughs> and um, I know there are several appellate judges, state Supreme Court justices, state intermediate appellate judges. There's a lot of trial judges. Yes, there's a lot that are on Twitter. The level of engagement, I think, varies yep. from judge to judge. Um, Bridget McCormick, the Michigan Supreme Court, is very active, and I think she's doing a great job with her account. There's just a lot. Judge Carla McMillan from my court. I know Justice Bethel on the Georgia Supreme Court. He's on Twitter. Brian Rickman on my court is on Twitter. Judge Gobeil. It does seem like there are some who violated the golden rule and tried to be anonymous and talk about their cases um, as well, <laughs> which is the exception rather than the rule. But it's interesting that I was looking this up and it looks like some judges have gotten into a little bit of hot water for talking about the people who've appeared in front of them. Yeah, that's, that's, that's bad. I yeah. mean, there's I mean no that's the golden rule, that. right? Don't talk about your cases. Yeah. You <laughs> don't talk about your, I, I, yeah, that's the number one rule. Don't talk about anything, you know, certainly not anything specific. Now, if you want to say, you know, in the last year, I've been really impressed with the level of advocacy of the lawyers who've appeared before me. I think that's perfectly fine. I don't think, you know, or I've been in the last year, I've been really impressed with the uh, how well written most of the. Br- I mean, talking in generality, right. I think is absolutely fine. You know, but but talking about something that happened at oral argument that day or commenting on someone's appearance or commenting on, wow, that, you know, that <laughs> lawyer did a poor job before me did that. I mean, no, bad you form. don't do that. <laughs> don't yeah, it's very bad form. You don't comment on, um, once again, you stay away from partisan politics. You have to, you have to watch out. Even the most benign tweet can be taken out of context depending on the timing of the tweet. And so some some days when things are running really hot, I'll just stay off Twitter for a while. Well, I was wondering, because, is there a tweet that you wish you could take back? I don't think so. I mean, you know, I, I remember there was one, and I don't remember all the circumstances behind it, but all I did was quote an article and I quote. I always quote the title of articles to make it clear that that's not my mm-hmm. title. And there was something where I did that. And I don't even remember what it was about now. But somebody got real offended, and I was like, I do that with every tweet. And I just thought to myself, well, this just shows me that you have to be, you know. And this was early on. This was before I had a lot of followers. But uh, you look, you know, if people want to be offended. 
if people want to try to take what you're saying out of context, I mean, that can happen. There's always that danger, but that, that can happen in real life too. And well, you, so, you have sparked some hot debates around the Oxford comma and spaces between sentences and whether or not citations ought to be in footnotes. And I'm okay with that kind of controversy. <laughs> Those are hills you will die on. Of, <laughs> I call that kind of nerdy controversy, yep. but it's not politics, right? And I think those are healthy debates. I think those may be debates that only appellate nerds and law nerds really care about, but I think it's perfectly fine for a judge to, you know, have that kind of debate and to let practitioners see that there are some judges because, you know, I'm in the minority view on, on what I call team footnotes, right? I mean, not a <laughs> yep. lot of judges. And so I kind of feel like because I've got my platform, it gives me an ability to, to say, here's why I do it the way that I yep. do it. I'm not really trying to get converts so much as I'm trying to defend why, and I got to tell you, I have a lot of lawyers come up to me, and of course, you know, I understand some of them have an incentive, um, but but it seems genuine. A lot of them come up and say your opinions are are I, they're very readable because they're not they don't have this clutter mm-hmm. in there, and so you know I'm I'm you know I don't agree. People are like, oh, you disagree with Brian Garner? Well, not really. I mean, Brian doesn't like substantive footnotes. Um, he likes citations and footnotes. Scalia likes substantive footnotes, but he didn't like citations. I kind of combined the two and went all <laughs> in on footnotes. And so it's my own, it's my own unique uh, style. And I just that's the way I. And the big thing I tell lawyers and law students is, you need to develop your own writing voice over time and your own writing style over time. And that's what I've tried to do. And I, and you never, I'm never fully satisfied with anything I write. I don't, I think once you start becoming satisfied or complacent with your writing style, you've, you know, you're on a downward trajectory. You need to, I always want to strive to become a better writer. And I think there's always room for improvement, no matter what level you're at. Well, I've got, speaking of which, I've got two final questions for you. And the first is, what advice would you give to a lawyer fairly recently out of law school, who's drafting their first brief, whether it's to a summary judgment brief or a brief to a court of appeals, what's the biggest thing that you can offer them to help point them in the right direction? Well, I think, first of all, there's there's internal considerations and external considerations. The internal considerations you might want to review if you're doing it for a partner, you might want to see some prior filings sure. just to get a sense of that of that partner's voice and how they he or she likes to write. As far as the external considerations, filing it with us, you know, my my big thing is don't use legalese. Um, provide a roadmap at the beginning of the brief. Give us a summary of the argument. Um, you know, don't neglect your facts section. Use that as an opportunity to frame your kind of overarching narrative at, at the outset. Don't spend a ton of time, you know, giving me don't spend three pages on the standard of review for summary judgment. Uh, you know, I know what the standard review is, put it in a couple of lines and move on. Um, and don't spend 10 pages going over and summarizing cases and the facts of those cases that really don't have anything to do with the facts of your particular appeal. If you're sometimes people do that to extract a principle 
of law from 10 cases and they just <laughs> right. go on and on to, you know what I, I mean? Keep an eye on where you're going, right? <laughs> yeah. Keep an eye on where you're going and, and, you know, anything that does not add subtracts from your opinion. You know, you need to be ruthless in cutting things out of the opinion. You don't, like and you don't have to max out your pages, right? Just because we give you 30 pages or because we give you whatever it is, 15,000 words or, yeah. you know, whatever it is on the word count, you don't have to use all of that. <laughs> and in fact, the judge may be grateful if you don't. <laughs> yeah. And use a big font, you know, definitely use 14 <laughs> if you're in Times New Roman so I can, I can actually see it. Uh, my poor eyes are, are getting, uh, are, Every year I have a thicker lens when I... Uh, I believe you're it. a fan of Georgia as an alternative to Times New Roman, though. I like Georgia a lot, not just because <laughs> of the name. I like the way it looks. But there, there are plenty of, of fonts. Right. You know, Times, I'm not like some people. I'm not a hater on Times oh, New Roman. I am. But our, opinion, <laughs> our opinions, I mean, our court uses that for our opinions. I don't love it, but, I mean, it's not like it's Courier, yeah. right? I mean, Courier... <laughs> is the worst. <laughs> I appreciate um, your scorn. Do not use Furious. Speaking of pressing issues of the day, how do you pronounce the graphics interchange format or GIF? Is it GIF or GIF? I would have I would have thought it was GIF, but everything I've heard is that the guy who created it says it's GIF. I, d I don't Do you think really he gets care. to say that, though? I don't know. I mean, I don't really. <laughs> I mean, I... I, I don't feel real passionate about that one okay. way or the other. I've gotten to where I say GIF, but I could easily go the other way on that. That's not. I was hoping to get I, a final judgment on that since I was giving one of my yeah, previous guests I mean, a hard time I, about it. <laughs> GIF makes more sense to me, but GIF, you know, I guess maybe we give him some degree <laughs> of. I guess if you if you discover a plant, right, you get to name it. Maybe if you do that, you get to, uh, you know, you are a planet, you get to name that. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what the rules are, that sort of thing. You get to decide how your own children's names are pronounced, I suppose, huh? Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> well, Judge, it's been a pleasure having you back. Thanks so much for coming back on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. to catch next week's episode of the lawyerist podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app and please leave a rating to help other people find our show you can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast lawyerist podcast is produced with help from Lindsay calhoun and edited by paul fisher the views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by legal talk network nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you Ooh.